It's okay, Jim. Take a break. Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining us this week is Rowdy Harrington. Now, Rowdy is one of the great genre workmen of all time, and most people know him uh, from Roadhouse the camp action classic with Patrick Swayze where he plays Dalton, the Zen bouncer who you just don't mess with, especially if they're being nice to you. Now, Rowdy was on the top of my list of people I wanted to talk to when we started this project just because he has one of the most fascinating backgrounds ever. Hailing from Pittsburgh, working at the same public access studio that George Romero did, and then eventually going on to work with Joel Silver, and even on television shows like Tales from the Crypt. Rowdy was an incredibly fun interview, super candid, and had a lot to say, including a full-on Joel Silver impersonation. So, enough from me, and let's get to Rowdy Harrington talking about everything from Roadhouse to Tales from the Crypt. How's it going? Pretty well. How about yourself? Pretty good. Where uh, are you right now? Colorado? No, Livingston, Montana. Montana. Wow. Yeah, we bought a ranch up here in 2011. Nice. How's the weather? It's been mild, actually. November's been quite warm. Um, it's 44 right now. Yesterday it was 62. Wow. So we've had a couple, three weeks here of uh, really mild temperatures. It's going to start getting chillier, um, but I don't think we have any major weather coming through the end of the year. So, um, All right. yeah, it's kind of good actually. It's 75 here, which is weird. So you're, you're in Austin. Yeah. It was like in the low fifties last week. Now it's 75, the Texas weather you can't keep up with or predict. Right. Right. <laughs> I've only been to Austin once. I really liked it. We scouted it actually for roadhouse there. Really? Yeah. We were looking for a place on the river. So we, we went down there. We ended up at uh, up and up just outside Fresno on the Kings River. Um, All right. How? So that would have been what, like nineteen eighty-eight? Yeah, eighty-eight. Right. Now I've got to ask because one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is because you're a Pittsburgh guy. Um, half of my family is from Pittsburgh literally got off the phone with them and I was telling them, oh, because you're from Penn Hills originally, I believe. Penn Hills, that's correct. And you started your career at WQED, right? That is correct. Can you talk about working there in the 70s a little bit? Oh, it was a blast. You know, when I got out of college, uh, you know, I, I was a television and uh, major at Penn State and, um, I came back home to Pittsburgh and, you know, it was a, at the time 
um, it was very difficult for young white boys, you know, because they had affirmative action and they're trying to make up for the fact that, you know, that people of color and, and women, you know, had been shut out of the workforce. So I went around to all the stations um, and I got, I got the same tune, you know, um, and my brother was actually working in the steel mill in Homestead, U.S. Steel. And he asked if I wanted to work there. And I said, well, might as well, because the money was good. And I was working in the mill and I had put in my application at, at WQED. And uh, they called me finally and offered me a part-time job. And believe it or not, I went to the foreman at, at, uh, at the mill and they were willing to adjust my schedule so that I could do this part-time work at the public television station. And they sort of used me as their, you know, plug-in guy, you know. Um, and then after a while, as I, you know, learned some things about how, you know, what the stage managing and being on the lighting crew, et cetera, I was getting more and more hours and it started to get crazy. And I finally went to the, uh, to the foreman in the mill and said, listen, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to quit. <laughs> this guy said, you know, don't you know, this is the best job you're ever going to have. And, uh, I think it's about, I don't know, six or seven years later, the whole mill was closed. Yeah. When, once that whole industry started shutting down in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So my, my first day in the business, I went into studio a at WQED and we took down the set for the neighborhood of make believe Mr. Rogers show. Wow. And, um, you know, I was on the lighting crew. We put up sets, you know, we did maintenance. Uh, you know, I, st I stage managed the newsroom show. Um, and then they got a contract, you know, they, PBS talked National Geographic into putting their content on uh, PBS. And QED got a contract with National Geographic to do a series of 10 shows about the Revolutionary War, Decade of Decision. Okay. And they were films. And um, we got to work on those. And I went, this is really what I want to do. I was, a, I was an English major for a long time at Penn State. Once I had taken all the writing courses, you know, I was kind of, I didn't want to read Thackeray, you know. So, <laughs> I, so I walked past the TV studio in, in Buki building. You know, I was doing a shortcut because it was freezing cold. And I looked in there and I saw these kids you know, they putting up lights and they had a set and the cameras and all that. And I thought that looks like fun. And it's been fun for about 45 years. I have to imagine working at public television was one of the better crash courses you could ever have. And just seeing how this behind the scenes operated. It was fabulous. And, and you know, I mean, the people that I worked with there, uh, you know, Tom Sharonis, who directed all the Seinfelds. Right. Wow. You know, uh, John Harrison, um, who, uh, you know, did the, uh, he's done all kinds of stuff, but he did, you know. Um, Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah, Tales right. from the Dark Side, and um, he did the Dune for television. Right. He's a very, very smart director and writer. Because he, uh, uh, he worked with Romero and Rubenstein quite a bit. Yes, yes. I never got to work with George, but I met him quite a few times because all my friends, you know, and my editor on, on about half the movies that I made was Pat Booba. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I met Pat at QED. Um, and, you know, there's a whole bunch. Michael Keaton was on our crew. 
So, you know, it was a really fabulous group of folks. And uh, pretty soon, just about, you know, quite a few of them anyway, migrated to Los Angeles. You know, I think Tom was one of the first. Charlie Hawk, um, who was a sitcom writer, and Michael, uh, myself, Pat Buba, John Harrison, Dusty Nelson. Um, anyway, was, you know, this, we call it the Pittsburgh people, you know. Yeah, I was going to say it's like my, the whole Pittsburgh mafia. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, and, and we've managed to stick together for all these years, which is, you know, wonderful. And, but you went to, I was reading an interview with you at another site where you said that you went to Washington DC first after right. getting laid off at WQED, right? That, that's correct. Yeah. You had like a brother who worked in the secret service or something. That's correct. Yeah. He was a secret service officer. Yeah. Now, he wasn't, he wasn't an agent. He was one of the guys that, you know, in the uniform and, you know, they patrol and, um, you know, they, they're stationed all over town you know they're at the embassies he actually met his wife at the australian embassy she's uh she worked there she was an australian uh woman is an australian woman. she's still alive um yeah uh, you know i went down there um and i was lucky enough to work on some pictures that were you know first of all we did a lot of industrials and, and government stuff sure uh, and I got on this film uh, starring Ossie Davis. I was gaffing it. And it was a really small picture, but it was about Benjamin Banneker, who's the uh, African-American astronomer and the man who surveyed Washington and laid it out. Mm -hmm. um, and when I worked on that, um, there was a woman, um, Zelda Barron, who was the script supervisor. And Zelda went on and directed movies. She was a script supervisor for Warren Beatty on Reds and eventually directed her son directed the uh, Ninja Turtle movies. Oh, wow. The first one, Steve Barron. Anyway, I asked Zelda, you know, I said, listen, I want to work in film. What should I do? And she said, you either have to be in New York or LA. Yeah. And, um, the age know, old adage, California dreaming, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, New York, as far as I was concerned, but the idea of the beach and, you know, you know, sunshine, ocean, you know, I packed up my car. I had a thousand bucks and I saved up and I put everything that would fit in this 1971 gremlin. And, uh, I had never been to California and I didn't know anybody. So yeah. How did you, different. because like looking at your CV and stuff, I mean, you were very much the definition of like a worker bee when you first sure. got out to, uh, LA how did you get uh, basically in on jobs because I mean I saw that you worked on everything from like kung fu movies to like hots to like repo man like yeah. just all kinds of stuff like how did you how does that happen well you know for the first year it was really really tough I didn't really have uh, any work and I kept going back to DC because there was a company there that did um, government films and we, we did, we made a film actually that uh, got nominated for uh, an Oscar for documentary short about the, um, the exhibit of the King Tut artifacts that was in the National Gallery. We were in there for a week at night. You know, mm -hmm. there was a line around the building three times 
to get in there, to walk through it. We were in there every, I was fabulous. I mean, I ran through this thing. I, I'd left a magazine at, at uh, one end of the exhibit, you know, cause you went through like a maze and in the center was the mask of King Tut. And, you know, um, I had to go load film into this magazine, bring it back. And it's like three in the morning, I'm running back through this thing and I stop and there's this 3000 year old gold mask of this Egyptian boy king. And I'm in the room alone with it. You know, this is, I don't know how I should get experiences like that, except this business, you know? Right. Anyway. So I, uh, I, I went to a party and I met a guy named Chris Tufty, who's a cameraman now. And at the time he was a gaffer. And I said, Hey, you know, I've done a lot of lighting stuff, you know, um, and if you need a guy, you know, I'll give you my number. He said, well, I have a crew, but I'll keep you in mind if I need, you know, guest electrician. So I said, okay. And sure enough, um, he called me because, uh, another friend of mine, who, this is a guy that I ended up working with on, I don't know, man, maybe 20 different project movies, you know, uh, Scott Butfield. Scott was an electrician on the crew and he left to do another job. So I took his place. And then um, the, the, that was the Kung Fu movie. Oh, no, excuse me. The, the, first, uh, the first one that Chris called me on was this Kung Fu movie. It was really, really low budget and his guys wouldn't do it. So I did it. And then he called me to replace Scotty. And then after that, I just worked with those guys. And uh, Scott became a gaffer, so I became his best boy. And, um, and then eventually he got more work than he could handle. And I started to take it and I became a gaffer. And we did commercials and low budget features, some really interesting ones. But you know, the great thing about it was I got to watch all these different directors work. Yeah. That's what was going to be my next question. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's no, there's, I mean, you know, I, I've told this story before, but it's, it's really important. And that is that you really have to learn the craft. Right. You know, you could be as talented as hell, but you know, that experience of, you know, in the old days, they, you were an apprentice for seven years, you know, and you did the dirty work, you know, and went for the sandwiches, but you know, you're there watching everything. And then for seven more years, you're, you're the journeyman and the master gives you specific elements of the craft to work on. And you work under him, but you're, you, now you, you, know, you're, you move forward. And eventually, you know, you've done all these other things. You've seen all this other stuff. And after 14 years, out you go. And I think I, 14 years in the business and I got to direct a movie. Yeah. And it's, it's very much like, the epitome of like blue collar uh, craftsmanship to where like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, I, it was, it was a, uh, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, you know, I, I did get to watch a lot of guys work and some really good ones and some really dumb ones. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when, when we were casting Jack's back, you know, I mean, I, I, lots of set experience, but I'd never done any casting and I never had done post-production. You know, I'm sitting in this room by myself and they're bringing these actors in to read. And I'm like, holy shit, you know, I don't, I don't like anybody. <laughs> and, you know, I'm getting scared. 
And I'm saying, okay, was is the script bad or is it, this guy's terrible, you know? And then James Spader came in. I said, woo. And he said, yeah. you want me to do it again? I said, no, that was great. He said, can I have the part? And I said, I'll, get, I'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> and uh, that night I went home and it was about 8.30, the phone rang. And I said, hello. And he said, Rowdy. And I said, yeah. He said, Jimmy. I'm thinking, he said, Jimmy Spader. I said, oh, hi. How'd you get my number? <laughs> You're in the book. He said, I just want to tell you, I want to do this movie. I was like, wow, I'll see what I can do. And they wanted me to meet Michael O'Keefe, who had been nominated for an Oscar for Great Santini. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to dinner with him. And uh, this is by way of getting back to you know, how I came up. We finally came around to talk about the movie after he you know, did, I don't know, 10 minutes on this condo in New York, this brownstone he bought for a million bucks or something. Anyway. He said, how many days do you have to shoot the movie? I said, 25. And he just froze. And he said, you can't make a movie in 25 days. And of course, that's all I'd ever done. Right. And so I, you know, I went to the producer and I said, I want James Spader. Of course, that was a great move. Yeah, because you get the whole spectrum of James Spader in that too, because you get twins. Yeah, no, and he's just, you know, not only is he a fabulous actor, he's funny, he's razor sharp. Never made a bad scene with him. I love yeah. him, man. Love him. Well, because that was, that was going to be a follow-up question down the line I had, because you've made three movies with him, too, because you had Jack's Back, uh, The Stick Up, and then Eyewitness, too. So I, the, stick up, I, the Stick Up's my favorite movie. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> We had a fun, oh man, we had a ball. And you know, again, that was, I think we had four or five million bucks, you know, 25 days. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was just, I mean, he's, he's terrific. And he's still with Leslie. You know, they met on that movie. Wow. Yeah, now, I put him in the bathtub, you know, and then after that, it was all he and Sheehan. <laughs> you know, I, I always do the love scene early. <laughs> Because you never know if they're going to be getting along, you know. I mean, it's all of a sudden, you know, there's tension, and then you get 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 that early because then it'll be, you know, they're they're hot. So, yeah, I was hesitant to ask that question because uh, you have quite the love scene in uh, Murder of Crows too between Cuba Gooding Jr. and Ashley Lawrence. Yeah, um, which like kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, the whole idea behind that was, you know, that we wanted to stretch the, you know, the idea. It was a thriller, you know. Right. And uh, and also at the time, I mean, it was an interracial sexual scene, which there weren't very many. Mm -hmm. So we decided, well, if we're going to do it, let's do it. Yeah. I mean, you go for it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Cuba was one of the producers on the film, you know, and, you know, we talked about that scene because, you know, with a lot of times the actresses in particular are more hesitant, you know, in striking distance, the studio called me and said, listen, you know, we need you to talk to Sarah Jessica about taking her clothes off. And I said, well, my understanding is that in her contract, she said no nudity. They said, yeah, but, you know, you, you just have to tell her she has to do it. And I said, you tell her. Yeah, right. 
Don't put that on me. (laughs) Yeah, forget it. Now, coming back to uh, Jack's back a little bit, um, that movie has an interesting origin, too, speaking of Blue Collar, because you were out with, uh, I believe it's Tim Moore, and pitched him over beers, like the idea of like a script? Well, you know, Tim Moore, who you probably know, produces for Clint Eastwood now. Right. Right. Well, Tim, uh, Tim was a key grip. And he and I go back to, you know, we did a PBS series in, in L.A. called um, Righteous Apples. And that's where we met. And then we did a whole bunch of work together where I was the gaffer and he was the, the key grip. Or we were on the same crew, you know. Um, and actually he was in Hawaii when I finished the script and, you know, we talked all the time and I told him that I had done, I had finished the script and I was excited about it. And, uh, he said, send it to me. So I sent it to him. He was working with Elliot Kastner who, you know, produced a lot of low budget films and Elliot loved him because, you know, Tim, he's just ball of energy. Everybody loves him. He's really smart. And as a key group, I mean, Elliot would go to him to say, you know, how's, how are they doing? They're going to make their day, you know, that kind of stuff. Finally, he said, he, he could tell that Tim was, you know, really smart. And he said, what do you want to do in this business? And Tim said, I want to be a producer. And he said, well, find a good piece of material and get it to someone like me. Then he gets my script. He reads it. He calls me up and he said, Rowdy, this is ready to shoot. He loved it. And, you know, I mean, I, I, it, the script started out, um, it was a more convoluted story. And I realized that I, I had this big conspiracy theory in it and, and it really wasn't working, but I loved the hook about the twins. You know, it started with, uh, I heard a radio show on NPR that interviewed a guy who's a doctor. He was an African-American man. His brother was on death row. So this was you know, a huge dichotomy. Um, and I just, started thinking about twins that have gone down different paths, you know. And then I went to the library and I looked up serial killers because I thought maybe that's a simple way to get around this story. And it was 1987 and the 100th anniversary of Jack the Ripper was coming up in 88. When I saw the 100th anniversary, I thought, holy cow, copycat um, killer 100 years later to the day doing the same thing, you know, and off to the races. Anyway, Tim, the, the, the front page of the script said, 100 years ago in the city of London, a man shocked the world by murdering and raping and mutilating five women. He was never caught. He turned the page and said, Jack's back. <laughs> he handed it to Elliot. Elliot opened it, looked at it, read that, handed it back to Tim. And he said, make it for 900000 So... Tim calls me and says, Elliot Kastner wants to do Jack's back. I'm in, I'm in uh, Santa Fe gaffing God Created Woman 2 with Chris Mangus. I'm sorry, that wasn't Chris Mangus. He called when, when I was there. Uh, the movie I did before that was uh, Shy People, that Chris, Chris was the cameraman. Anyway, um, we got fired off the movie, the whole crew, because <laughs> – they were going to fire the first assistant cameraman because they thought he was slowing the cameraman down. Uh, Cause the cameraman would ask him all these questions. He was very insecure. We said, you can't fire this guy because he's doing what his boss told him to do. You know, what's going on here? And uh, the guy said, well, I can do anything I want. You know, <laughs> sir. 
And we said, okay, well then get another crew. Well, the week went by, we thought, okay, we kicked his ass. <laughs> and Saturday came and they fired us all. Well, so, at least you got fired and had a movie. Yeah, <laughs> I went back and uh, I, I had to meet um, Elliot's stepson, Cassie and Elway's. And uh, I, I had gone back to LA to meet Elliot and he stood me up. They, uh, they wanted to buy the script and um, I had, Originally, the Spader character was originally drawn as an African-American. Oh, wow. Yeah, because, I mean, that was what the story was based on. That's, you know, that radio drama or radio uh, doc that I heard uh, on NPR. And they said, you know, listen, we're not racist, but, you know, we're talking about box office here. You know, we really need to have an actor that, you know, there's nobody that makes it tick for us with this for, at this budget so i said okay well i you know i figured this is characters who the character is whatever color he is and you know i really wanted to sell a script so i said okay i could change that and i went home and they called me up and uh said you want to direct a movie because tim got him in the room and said look you have to let him do it you know i mean he's like done 40 pictures you know and uh I had to turn them down because I was already in the director's guild from when I was in Washington, I got in the DGA as an associate director at NBC doing, you know, uh, operations, they called it. Sure. And I wasn't going to start my career by getting kicked out of the union, you know, and, you know, Tim talked to them again, they figured out the DGA low budget agreement and ended up like, I think we ended up with a million bucks instead of 900,000 and, we made the picture and you know, I got offered roadhouse. Was that boom? Yeah, that was, that was going to be obviously the next question, but I did, I guess in that moment, James Spader was mostly known what for pretty and pink. Would that have been his biggest? Well, he, he had done a whole bunch of supporting roles. Yeah. Uh, well, cause uh, he was in one horror movie. I really like called the new kids for Sean Cunningham. And less than zero. He was actually yeah. shooting less than zero when I met him. Yeah. Um, Baby Boomer. Yeah. He was in that. Um, anyway, you had him relatively early. Yeah, it was his first first uh, lead of a picture. Yeah, that's. I was trying you know, to rack had, my we brain. Had dinner, we had dinner on his birthday in uh, in Vancouver when we were doing uh, stick up. And, okay. Uh, he told me, you know, I mean, he got all kinds of. Uh, accolades. I mean, he got the Can Award for acting it for um, oh hell, what's the name of the movie? Soderbergh's picture. Sex, Sex Life, Life Videotape. Videotape. Yeah. yeah. And he said, everybody thinks that that was the, you know, the seminal. He said it wasn't. He said it was Jack's back. Because that was his first time he had to carry a movie on his own. Yeah. And, and you know, it was my first movie. And, you know, we were like peas in a pod. And we stand on the, you know, a lot of nights in that movie. And we just stand out on the, there were no motorhomes, you know. We stand out on the corner smoking cigarettes, waiting for him to light, you know. <laughs> um, so how does Roadhouse and Joel Silver come about? Well, I got signed by Triad Agency after I made Jack's Back. And... Uh, they represented Patrick Swayze. Okay. So they were, they were pushing a triad uh, director. 
And there were a couple of guys that they put up for the job. And Joel watched Jack's back. He watched it with Shane Black. This is yeah. the story he told me. And, uh, you know, Shane's from Pittsburgh. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so Shane gave me, a, evidently gave me a great review. But, you know, what, what he told me was that the scene where it's actually John Harrison in the scene. I cast John as the guy who sells the gun uh, to Spader in the porn shop. Oh, wow. I didn't John, know that was him. That's John Harrison. Yeah. So the line is, you know, he said, what's a nice kid like you want with a piece? And Jimmy says, wedding present. Well, that was Spader's ad lib. Oh, wow. But anyway, when that line came on, it lit Joel up. He's all about those one-liners that are zingers. And he looked over at Shane, and Shane said, you got to get this guy. <laughs> so I don't, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to have to go gaff a movie, you know, because, I mean, I got paid shit on Jack's back. You know, sure. Nothing. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do, and the phone rings, and uh, it's Joel Silver. And he said, is this Rowdy Harrington? I said, yeah. He said, uh, this is Joel Silver. He said, I'm a producer. I said, I, well, I know who you are. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, did, you, uh, did you get the script for Roadhouse? And I said, no. And I heard, Timmy! <laughs> get a messenger! You know, and like half an hour later, here comes the script. So I read it. And, you know, it's really broad. And... You know, it was not what I was thinking about for my career, you know. Uh, it's kind of an irony because it's, the, it's what I'm famous for in a way. You know, it's like the most well-known of my work. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but anyway, I said no. And then everybody went crazy. Yeah, this was the legend I wanted to ask you about um, if whether or not, because there's there's obviously a lot of weird lore that goes around Roadhouse at this point. Um, but the, the famous legend was that you turned it down and then you were summoned to like a midnight meeting with Joel Silver who like wanted you to yeah. make the movie. Yeah. No, the phone rings again. He said, Howdy. he said, you pass it on this movie. And I said, um, yeah, you know, Joel, the, the script isn't very good, you know, and you can't make a good movie without a good script. And he said, well, listen, he said, you know, I'm a producer. He said, I got other things I'm doing. He said, I think you're really talented. I want to meet you. Would you come down and meet me? You know, he can't say no to that. Right. So I said, okay, well, you know, when do you want me to come? He said, tonight at midnight. <laughs> at midnight. He said, yeah, that's our lunch break. They're shooting Die Hard. So I go down to the Fox lot. Now, I've never been on a studio lot because I've only worked non-union movies. Right. So this is like, wow, this is like the ancient Hollywood, man. This is the real thing. Yeah. You're in Disneyland at this point. I mean it. And I go in there and there's, you know, Bruce Willis and McTiernan and, you know, this, they're blowing the whole fucking place up, you know? And uh, it was really cool. And then we go into Joel's office and he said, listen, he said, I, I know that the script needs work and you can do it. You know, I want you to guide this thing because I believe that you can make this be a good movie. He said, I need you. And, you know, I mean, I'm from Pittsburgh. You know, somebody tells you they, they need your help. It changes things. And I had already gotten it from my wife, from Tim, 
from the agency that this was a studio movie with a major star coming off of Dirty Dancing, for Christ's sake. You know, you can't, this is a career move. This is going to be great for you. So I say, okay. And off we went. And the first thing I had to do, you know, we, uh, we made an offer to Sam Elliott and he passed. Yeah. So I, I just learned my lesson from Joel. So I called up his agent and I said, listen, I'm a fan of Sam's. I know he doesn't want to do this movie, but I got some other things that I'm thinking about. You know, I'd like to meet Sam. Would he, would he meet me? You know, just, you know, I'm not going to put any pressure on him to do this picture. But, you know, it'd be nice for us to have a relationship because, you know, I just, I'd love to work with him at some point. And they said, well, I'll ask him. And he come back and he said, yeah, he would meet me. So he came to the lot. We were on the Sony lot at that point. And uh, we went to the commissary and we're sitting at a table and, you know, we talked a little bit. And I said, you know, I really had my hands full with Roadhouse that I was really working. Um, I knew that it was kind of a cartoon, you know. Sure. I mean, it was the cartoon violence, you know, the funny lines, you know, um, but that I really needed to anchor it with, you know, solid performances or, you know, we're going to get laughed out of this theater. And um, I said, you know, Sam, if you don't do this movie, I'm fucked. <laughs> and, you know, we had been, he's met me, you know, we had a, a nice lunch, you know, you got to, I'm not an asshole. I'm not a screamer. I'm not crazy. I knew what the movie was. And I said, Sam, ask for more money. You know, we'll go do this. And, you know, then he was in. So, you know, Joel taught me. I passed it. I did it to Cuba too. Same thing. Cuba passed on Gladiator. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, I got him. I said, you know, I understand. Come on, have lunch with me. And then I told him, you know, the script that was, that existed was not the script I was going to shoot. That's how I got the job. I had to go in there and meet Frank Price and tell him what was wrong with the script. And, uh, you know, the whole ending was bad. And, you know, I told him what I would do and I got the job. And, you know, Nick Kazan then wrote what I asked him to write uh, for, for, for how, you know, the climax of that picture. I told Cuba what the climax was going to be. And he said, oh, that's different. Mm -hmm. And, then, you know, we got him. But um, anyway, we went off and uh, made Roadhouse, and then I sold the, I sold the script for Striking Distance to Columbia, which was um, it was called Three Rivers at first. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. My log line was one killer, two cops, three rivers, and of course, there's geniuses in the you know marketing department. Right. I, was, I mean, I think the poster is the stupidest poster I've ever seen. It's on my wall, and I'm like, I want to throw up. It's just stupid, you know. Well, I did have a question because, like, yeah, Roadhouse is cartoonish. It's goofy. It's a lot of fun. But at the same time, like, I've written about the movie a bunch because I think it's so well crafted. You make. I'm very proud of it. You know, at the time, yeah. you know, we got some terrible reviews and it really sunk me, you know, uh, because it was kind of like, okay, my first reaction to this was that it's not very good. And then we got killed by the review. I mean, Gene Shallot called it Outhouse. Yeah. You know, and I, I had taken John out. Rosenbaum call it Walking Short. 
I don't, I don't know. I think so. It oh, was some like there was we got we got pissed on pretty good, yeah. but you know the, the fact of the matter was this was kind of like you know you hear your own words coming back to bite you in the ass, you know. So for a long time, I I felt bad about it, but the truth of the matter is that what I was able to do with that movie, I'm really proud of because I mean we we made some really smart decisions, you know. I got um um um. Oh my God, I, his name went right out of my head. Wesley. Um, oh, fuck. You know who plays the bad guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, well, you have Ben Gazzara. And then ben Gazzara. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, Ben. He's passed. My apologies. Well, it's, and he was going to be one of the main questions I wanted for you because, like, he's just eating that role up, man. Oh, my God. Listen. One of my favorite movies at that point in time was St. Jack. Which is a masterpiece. That's a fucking masterpiece. It's yeah. a great movie, and, and he is brilliant in it. Yeah. So we went and, and to James Garner's house, because it was Joel, you know, to pitch James Garner on playing Brad Wesley. And Joel did five minutes on all his success, you know, like, $100 million for this movie, $100 million for that movie, you know, Predator, da 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 Die Hard, you know, Lethal Weapon. And, you know, James Garner's looking at me, and I, I looked younger than I was. <laughs> and, you know, he's looking at me, he's, who's directing this? And I said, I am. And it's like, holy Jesus Christ. And then he said, you know, when Joel finished his whole pitch about how much money these movies make, he said, success don't interest me. And that was the end of the meeting, sitting by his pool. On the way out, I said, Mr. Garner, the Americanization of Emily is one of my favorite movies. And he said, mine too. I just wanted him to know I wasn't an idiot. Right. You know. So I suggested Ben Gazzara. And Ben had not been working in Hollywood hardly at all. I mean, he was in Italy doing, you know, Italian movies. Yeah. Keep, you know, keep going. And he thanked me profuse, profusely, you know, for getting him back to Hollywood. And, you know, I mean, he's just a great actor. Yeah. And, you know, he took it all seriously. And, you know, Patrick, Patrick's fabulous and, you know, so good at all the, you know, choreography of the fights. And, um, you know, he looks so good on camera. Well, and Pat Kelly did a great job. That was going to be one of the questions I had for you too, because like, yeah, like Swayze at that point is known for Dirty Dancing. You know, that's his big break. Yeah, he did that roller movie. You know. Yeah. Well, and he has Next to Kin the same year that. That was after us. Oh, was that after you? I thought that was the yeah. same year. No, he did that right after Roadhouse. But okay. you know, I wondered, you know, what's going on? You know, did Pat, you know Patrick's in a great seat at this point in time with his career? You know, why would he pick Roadhouse? And he, he wanted to play a macho character. And that was my question is like. Yeah, because of all the dancing and all that, you know. I mean, you know, like he, he went out for football because he was in the ballet. Right. You know, so he wanted to make sure people knew I'm a man, you know. And he is. Fabulous guy. You know, just a gentleman. It was a pleasure to work with him. 
you know, we had one, the grips took him out one night and got him absolutely drunk. We couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't start till like three o'clock. And the shit was hitting the fan because we were on location. I've told this story before, but it's funny and worth repeating. When I got the script, it was really long too. And I wanted to take stuff out of it. I did take some things out of it. There was like even a castration scene. And if you could believe that. Jesus. Yeah. No, Joel's like, he, he, he on edge at times. Anyway, <laughs> so I, you know, we met with the studio and the studio said the script's too long. And he slid it across the table. Choose now. You want to hit her a bomb, hit her a bomb. Choose now. And, you know, they slid the script back. Well, I'm telling Joe, look, you know, this, I don't think this scene's going to be in the movie. We're wasting time because I'd like to have the time to shoot this scene, which, you know, is complicated. You know, you got to shoot everything. You don't know until you get in the editing room what you're going to need. He said, you got to keep shooting shoot it all. I said, well, you know, I'm worried. He said, I'll tell you when to worry. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> this happened two or three times. I'll tell you when to worry. You know, we went over and I'm like, oh, Christ. I said, I'm not going to make my day. I'll tell you when to worry. Well, you know, that Patrick got drunk, you know, the studio's freaking out, we're over budget. He comes on the set and he said, remember when I told you I was going to tell you when to worry? And I said, yeah, he said, start fucking worrying. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he, he's an absolutely great producer. I learned a ton of shit from him, man. He's Wait. really good at what he does and, you know, really caring. He said, Rowdy, you come to me, you tell me you need 100 penguins, I'm going to find 100 penguins. He said, if I can only find 96 penguins, I'm becoming to you and say, Roddy, can you do it with 96 penguins? <laughs> now, yeah. speaking of, uh, you said that Joel Silver loves the zingers, the one-liners. Yeah. Um, I had to ask this question because it's just a line that I've used a million times. I used to fuck guys like you in prison. Was Joel. that in the script or was that ad lib? Joel. That's Joel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was Joel's. I just, every time I watch that movie with an audience, that, that line comes out and it just tears people to shreds. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, you know, there were some other things. Uh, I didn't try to cut that line out because I thought it really was great for Jimmy Reno. Um, but there's some other things that I tried to cut out. I did cut out in my cut of the movie and it got put back in. When Joel, you know, had his cut for the studio. Sure. And, um, you know, that pissed me off a little bit. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that I would say that the majority of the people um, that have seen this movie has watched it on television. And some of that stuff is out, you know, for, for TV broadcast. Um, right. When it came back on cable and such, less so. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I was told, well, it was in Playboy magazine, actually, that we broke the record for uh, a movie all time, uh, you know, showings on television. Yeah, I, I read that in a couple places, too, to where it was like, yeah, um, you know, like, who knew? You know, I mean, I went to the art director, you know, and said, I want everything in primary colors. You know, because this is kind of a cartoon, you know. And, you know, it's all vibrant and boom. Well, and I get it helps because you had Dean Cundy shooting it, right? I, yeah, but I had been an electrician on Dean's crew on a non-union picture. 
Yeah, like so they asked me. You know, at that point, he'd done Back to the Future, and you know, he'd done a raft of stuff. And you know, he was available. Yeah, you know, I, I, they said, "Who do you who would you like to work with?" And I said, "I wonder if Dean Cundy would do it." I had no idea if he would. Yeah, I and, mean, uh, it's tough to make a bad looking movie when you have one of John Carpenter's main men shoot. Well, you know, Joel's team was an A team. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons that the picture looks so good. And, um, you know, the, the creative things that I brought to the movie, I'm very proud of. You know, like busting that window and shooting Sam through the hole in the, you know, windshield, things like that, you know. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of input on the script. So, you know, I think I cleaned up a lot of stuff that Patrick had to say to make him a little smarter and not, not so weird, you know. Well, and that was going to be one of the other questions I had, too, because there's an interesting – the week that this interview will air, uh, Point Break is our, our movie of the week that we're doing the main episode around. Right. Uh, and one of the co-hosts asked me, he was like, well, when you talk to Rowdy, you have to ask him, like, because there's an interesting spiritual thing between Roadhouse and Point Break um, that I wondered, like, where – the Zen philosophy stuff came in terms of Dalton, because you see a lot of it in Bodhi too. They're right. almost extensions of the same persona in a couple of ways. Only he's like almost like the dark dimension version of that. Right. Well, in the original script, it was a mention that he was sort of a Zen bouncer. Sure. So my wife um, taught um, Tai Chi. So I got her on the set and I said, let's do a scene where, Patrick's doing Tai Chi. And then we have, you know, across the river, Ben watching him going, what the fuck is going on with this guy? <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's got that body, you know, body beautiful in the movement, you know, um, and, you know, using his dance ability. So that, you know, that element, it, it appeals, I think, to Patrick as well. So, and I, I, I'll tell you flat out, that he loved doing the action. Yeah. And I had to tell him that he wasn't allowed to do the bulldog. That's where the guy, the stuntman knocks uh, Reno off the motorcycle. Yeah. That's the only thing he didn't do. Wow. And he was pissed at me. He said, I can do that. I said, no, you can't. I know you can't, but you're not allowed. Well, because he famously jumped out of the plane for point break for Catherine Bigelow too. Yeah. And, you know, all that stuff that's his stunts, uh, you know, he loved it. Yeah. I mean, he Absolutely was loved it. And he was great at it. Yeah. You know, I mean, but, I mean, my God, you know, um, Marshall Teague, who played Jimmy Reno, um, you know, he learned the choreography for the big fight at the river. Mm -hmm. And then um, Patrick's in everything, you know, so he has to take five minutes here and 10 minutes there or half hour uh, to, Look, you know, learn the choreography, which he was a very quick study. But they were both sort of in, you know, method actors. And so, you know, they would just like stare across the cafeteria at each other, you know, and, you know, scowl and they wouldn't speak. And, you know, it was like they were carrying on this, you know, rivalry. And when Marshall had to teach him the uh, choreography, often, Patrick, because he didn't know exactly the moves, would zig when he should have zagged, then he let Marshall have it, <laughs> you know, actually connect, you know, and it was like, 
Carton Marshall's like, it's cool, it's okay, I'm all right. And uh, so they went through hell. You know, we shot that over two nights um, and it was brutal. And Patrick was getting his knee drained in between and, you know, it was tough. Wow. And those guys became like brothers. And, you know, one of Patrick's best friends uh, for the rest of his life was Marshall Teague. So what started out, it's really interesting to watch relationships form, you know, and, and carry on beyond, you know, this really intense, like, it's almost like going to war, you know. Or sports uh, on like a yeah. lesser level. It's like watching yeah, a team. Yeah. 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 Um, w- the other element I did want to ask with Roadhouse is one of the things that appeals to me about it that I really like, it's, it's the same thing we did uh, the Hitcher earlier this, this season. And I talked to Robert Harmon uh, about directing that movie. And he does something similar with that that I really like with a movie that he made later with Jean-Claude Van Damme called Nowhere to Run is that he directs it like a Western. And that's the thing with Roadhouse that when I watch your movie is that it's it's almost this Hawksian Western with Ben Gazzara as like a cattle baron. Exactly. It's a modern Western without question. And and we knew that, you know, I mean, that that structure was obvious. You know, he's he's the gunslinger that comes to town. Yeah. And the, the, the bad rancher has his main guy who's, you know, I mean, Shane, you know. Yeah. Jack Palance is the bad guy and. You know, he's going to do bad things. And, you know, the difference is, you know, when you put it into a modern context, we had some fun. You know, we had that Bigfoot driving through the dealership, you know, crazy shit. You know, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's an entertaining movie. You know, I mean, that, like I said, it kind of surprised me. You know, I, when the movie came out, and you, you know, you get hammered, you know, you start feeling kind of bad about it. And as a matter of fact, Joel offered me another movie. He offered me Ford Fairlane, which was just, the script was just as bad. It was with Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah, and Rennie Harlan ended up doing that one, right? Yeah, and then Rennie went on and did Die Hard 2. Right. But you... you... I mean, that would have been my path, you know, if I had stayed with Joel. Um, But, you know, I I said, you know, I just did this movie and, you know, it doesn't reflect my values of, you know what I would like to do as a filmmaker and understand that, you know, we crafted modern Western, um, but, you know, I have other aspirations. So I just started writing. You know, well, writing, I should say. I did want to ask you about, cause I have to imagine that this is also uh, Joel Silver recruiting you to a certain degree uh, is Tales from the Crypt. Right. You did an episode with Shane Black's brother, I believe. Yeah, Terry he wrote it. Yeah, Shane yeah. Black's brother wrote it. And um, actually, the first one they gave me was uh, about a baby that gets stolen. Okay. And then they came back. And I mean, we were not that far out from getting ready to do this thing. And it was toward the end of the season. I mean, I think I followed Schwarzenegger. Okay. And uh, they decided that it was too dark for Tales from the Crypt, which is pretty dark. Yeah. So um, they gave me this script, and I was delighted because it was funny, you know, and uh, we had a lot of fun doing it. It has uh, a lot of Harry, Harry Anderson was great, and I got Cindy Gibb, and I, that was my Hudson in the, in, the, in the shot where he meets her in the car. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
We had a lot of fun doing that. And then, you know, at the time, um, I had sold three rivers to Columbia. And then Joel called me and said, do you want to do Tales from the Crypt? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. That'd be great. So Columbia, uh, the producer who bought the script was Arnold Milchen. And he was, he had done a lot of stuff with De Niro. So they gave the script to De Niro. And so I'm on the set of Tales from the Crypt. And they called me up and said, uh, Bob De Niro wants to come down and meet you. So he comes to the set at lunch and talk about your status going up on the set. You know, one of the great actors of all time comes in and wants to meet you about your script. And uh, I know Cindy Gibb, after the meeting, she said, Rowdy. <laughs> so I worked with uh, Bob for three months on the script. Yeah, because he helped rewrite it, right? A little bit? Well, I rewrote it for him. Oh, okay. On, you know, he said, you know, he was not enamored of the action. You know, he said, Rowdy, why you got to chase this guy at the end? You already know who the killer is. Why you got to run after him? You know, anyway, and his vision of the movie was about a family of alcoholic cops, one of whom became a killer. Yeah. And he was interested in those relationships. You know, I built all this stuff up. And the studio hated it. Really? Yeah, they said, this is not the script we bought. You know, the script we bought had action and humor. And, you know, it's like, just, we don't like it. So Bob said, oh, well, I'm not going to do it. He said Midnight Run would have been a good movie if they had taken all that action out. <laughs> Man. So he's, he gave me a hug and he said, get Mel Gibson. Well, Mel, I don't think Mel was available. They offered it to Michael Douglas. And Michael Douglas said, you know, I just played this guy, Black Rain. Yeah. You know, um, and then my agent represented Bruce Willis. So they gave it to Bruce and that turned out to be a bad deal because he got the De Niro script. He was tired of being Bruce Willis. He wanted to be Robert De Niro. So he was bringing scenes from this script that I wrote that he wanted to shoot. And, you know, we got into that. Yeah. And the studio fired Frank Price who was the guy who bought the script and then gave me Gladiator to direct and then bought another script of mine called Ocean Boulevard that I wrote with Greg Taylor. Greg, Greg wrote Jumanji. And Greg and I went to school together at Penn State. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so that was, not a, that was not a good experience. He's not a fun guy. Yeah, he kind of garnered that reputation a bit too on um uh the uh the shane black uh, movie uh, last boy scout is that i know that the legend behind that one is that he and tony scott did not get along one bit either well you know he tried to take over the movie and, yeah you know, i mean when the guy's making 13 million dollars and you're not and the head of the studio is gone my agent is his agent my attorney is his attorney um, it was, it was, I was in a box. Sure. And, you know, I was the least, my least favorite movie. And I don't think it works very well, to be honest. It's, I don't, I don't like that picture. 
you know, it's kind of sad because, you know, you put a lot of time and effort into something and, uh, you know, it's just because the, what, you know, my editor told me a long time ago, um, that there's a set experience that you have when you're making the picture that colors how you feel about a scene. Sure. Like the actor struggles, you know, and so it's always a struggle in your mind. Whereas the editor gets the footage and then just puts it together and he doesn't have that prejudice. Right. Yeah. Well, the set experience is, is really it in many ways defines how you feel about the film. And, you know, that's why stick up is so one of my favorites, you know, because it was so much fun. You know, I was working with somebody who I, I absolutely love, who's so talented, um, makes everything better. Sure. You know, we're, uh, we're up in, uh, in uh, British Columbia when we shot that. And there's a, if you remember the picture, there's a fight in the bedroom. Yeah. Right. And Jimmy comes out of the closet, you know, and the guy thinks, you know, David Key thinks he's under the bed. And then, you know, they, we shot that in a real bedroom and it was tight. You know, <laughs> we didn't have money to build a set, you know. And um, anyway, uh, when I wrote the script, I got to this line um, where Leslie's character says to him, uh, is he still alive? And Jimmy says, it, it's possible. Well, when I wrote the line, I laughed out loud. I thought, oh, that's a really good line. You know, I'm so proud of myself. So I can't stand it. We do the scene. And I said to Jimmy, uh, that line, you know, when you say it's possible, it's going to be a big laugh. He said, no. <laughs> I said, no. He said, no. He said, the funny line, Rowdy, is what a day. <laughs> I said, really? So we screened the picture. And, you know, is he still alive? It's possible. Nothing. And at the end of the scene, he says, what a day the house came down. Hey, man, that's why movies that's why are hire him. Yeah, that's why I hire him. Nobody knows everything. Um, now, I, I do have to ask, because I just watched it today uh, for the first time in a while, uh, Murder of Crows. Um, yeah. That feels like you especially since you bring up being an English major before uh, you became like a film and television major, is that it feels like you kind of messing around and going back to that a little bit with all of the literary references and Christopher Marlowe and Shakespeare, but then almost uh, like, let's say packaging it inside of a John Grisham like movie or like a riff on that type of thriller. Um, yeah. And I just wondered where all that stuff came from. Well, believe it or not, the very first script I wrote was called bestseller. Okay. It was about plagiarism. So it was about everything in the book is true. Right. And when I first came out to Los Angeles, you know, I told you that uh, I'd worked on this documentary that got nominated. Mm -hmm. Well, the director of that, went into CAA had an interview and uh, for representation and he took my script. So I get this call from this agent, Stephanie Brody, God knows where she is these days, but she said, you know, uh, are you Rowdy Harrington? And, and I said, yes. She said, I read your script. And I said, my script. And she said, yeah, bestseller. Um, she said, I think this could be a prestigious movie of the week. I said, really? She said, yeah, I want to read everything you've written. And I said, you have. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> and, 
anyway, um, she couldn't sell it. And, you know, uh, it wasn't, I mean, I, you know, writing's a craft. You have to keep writing to get good. You know, I mean, sure. the, everybody has various levels of talent, but, you know, you, it, you really have to work. And um, anyway, she said, you're not a good enough writer for this yet. Put it away and come back to it when, you know, you have more experience. And that's kind of pissed, you know, because first I was disappointed thinking, no, okay, you know, I got something going already, you know. Anyway, um, after the OJ trial, I, uh, I said, you know, I'm really kind of fucking pissed at lawyers. You know, you <laughs> have to represent a guy that you know is guilty and you get him off, you know? And so I folded that into my original idea. And then, you know, I'm, I lived out in Malibu and uh, I had an office in the back of my house and um, Cuba came over and Cuba had just won the Oscar and the script is sitting on the desk. And he said, uh, what's that? I said, Oh, I just, just finished this. I said, can I read it? And I said, okay. Now I wasn't thinking about Cuba in the role. You know, I had somebody much older and more grizz. I was thinking, you know, like uh, Ed Harris or Alec Baldwin or something. Anyway, you know, when you're writing, different people go through your mind about who you're going to cast. I've never gotten the person that I thought of when I was writing it, that's for sure. But anyway, one o'clock in the morning, my phone rings and it's Cuba. And he said, we're going to make this movie, Rowdy. Wow. Yeah. So because he had just won the Oscar, he was able to get to Ely Samaha and put up the money. And we made the picture. Nice. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Cuba, you know, Cuba and I, we're in touch all the time. You know, we're good friends. Now, why did you move away from making these sort of mystery thrillers? Because you made... Murder. Yeah, murder? Yeah, got tired of murder. You got to live it. Yeah. It's dark. It's dark. Um, and, you know, I mean, action pictures in general, you know, they're gonna, there's going to be violence, you know. Um, but after, um, Murder of Crows, I, I think I, I watched the Soderbergh movie, uh, with, um, Jennifer Lopez. Out about, of sight. Yeah, out of sight. And I thought, ah, bank robbery. You know, that's a fun idea. You know, I could have fun with that. And, uh, so I, I, I wrote that script in three weeks. It, it was just boom, you know, I got this idea. So, okay, there's a guy in a car. He's got a bag of money, a sawed off shotgun and a clown mask and the cops are chasing him, but he didn't do it. And then off it went. Yeah. You're just off to the races at that point. Yeah. And, uh, eyewitness was a script that, uh, Promark gave me after I made uh, stick up. And, you know, we got Jeff Daniels attached and I got Jimmy to do it. Um, and I, I rewrote that script and I didn't get credit. And I made it a lot better. They won, a, they won a best screenplay at the Hollywood Film Festival. And, uh, you know, when you, do, when you, as a director, when you rewrite a script, the Writers Guild doesn't like it. Yeah. They protect their writers. So it goes to arbitration. And... Um, I got outvoted for credit two to one. 
So three arbiters read it and two said, no, he shouldn't give him, get credit. And the third guy said, the first two writers should thank him. So, and you know, they did win an award, which, you know, that made me feel good, you know, uncredited, un, uh, but good. Um, and then the Bobby Jones thing happened because of Tim. Okay. You know, um, these guys, uh, they raised the money from, you know, um, a consortium, one of whom was Tom Crow, who started Cobra Golf. Okay. They had, they had this bag of money. And um, Kim Dawson, who is now like a brother to me, that's where we met. Um, he had had, for, for 13 years, was trying to get the Bobby Jones story made. And um, anyway, they hired a company in Los Angeles to produce it that didn't really have a lot of experience. And the, one of the guys was friends with Tim and said, you know, we need Tim more. You know, we need somebody that really knows what they're doing to pull this off. So they brought Tim in and he read this, the script they had. And he said, you know, you need Rowdy. So they called me up and I went in and met and uh, they said, okay, um, we're, we're going to hire you to rewrite this script. And I said, well, I'm going to start over. You know, I'm going to start with Bobby Jones as a kid. And they said, well, okay. And they, you know, they said, uh, you know, Tim said I could direct it, you know, if they so desired. And they said, well, if we like your script, we'll hire you to direct it too. And uh, so I, you know, I'm writing away and, you know, Kim Dawson is calling me like every couple of three days, you know, saying, well, you, you got anything to show me? So I finished the first act and he calls me up. I thought, okay, I got to shut this guy up. And I sent him the first act and he just loved it. So we were off to the races and there were, you know, some bumps in the road because Ely Samaha was supposed to bring money and he pulled out at the last minute and the investors had to buck up more dough. And yeah. we were in Scotland getting ready to shoot. And I didn't know if it was going to happen. I thought they were going to pull the plug, but they, they decided to put more money up. And then they very stupidly tried to put the picture out on Bobby Jones' birthday in April before any of the majors, before the masters for that matter. And, uh, you know, they had some morons who, you know, had marketed some Christian movies. Right. And we had 11% awareness for a golf movie. First of all, how many people want to see a golf movie? And if you only have 11% of the people that even know about it, you know, and the guys that we brought in that we wanted to market the film said, it's got to come out in the fall after all and be, be like promoted at every major. And it tanked, you know, Caviso called me up and he said, Rowdy, don't worry. He said, it's a wonderful life, you know, was a bomb when it opened. And he said, it's going to be around forever. You know, it's a, it's a period film. It's about a great man. And, you know, he really loved the movie. He's a very good actor. And I, I had a really, uh, very good time working with him. Real smart, very committed and uh, very religious, um, you know, and uh, they played Jesus. But I mean, he has a great sense of humor about it too. You know, people, he said people came up to him, you know, and in, in awe um, that he played Jesus. You know, and he said, well, you know, I'm not Jesus. He said, I'm the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. Or, uh, I mean, my 
favorite movie that he's been in. I mean, he was in Malick's Thin Red Line, which That's is fabulous. Mean, yeah, yeah, fabulous. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a privilege. You know, Joel told me when I, you know, when I first started, he said, you know, Rowdy, the rule about real estate is, you know, location, location, location. He said in the movie business, it's casting, casting, casting. Yeah, He's absolutely right. Now you have to have a good script. You do. But you know what? You cast it wrong and you're fucked. You know, um, and you cast it right. And even something that maybe has some issues, you know, you have such great performances that, you know, rise above it. Well, that seems like a good enough place to stop right there. Uh, first off, thanks for spending this time with me. This has been awesome, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, are you know you it's, it's, it, it's fun to talk about this stuff, you know. Are you working on anything now? Oh, man, I got a raft of stuff I'm doing. Yeah. <clears throat> I just I finished a uh, script with uh, my friend Michael Hall. We wrote this script a while back, uh, and uh, a guy named Travis Cloyd um, that I met, who's uh, he's a futurist, and a, he was a VR visionary of the year in 2019. And um, he said, Rowdy, do you have any scripts that we could turn into an interactive feature? Hmm. So I sent him like three things, and uh, he settled on this. It's kind of a horror prison movie. And it's called The Unseen, and it takes place in Alaska at a supermax prison. And there's a blizzard and a major earthquake. 9.2 breaks the prison in half on the day when this new white supremacist has just come to the prison who, like, murdered a bunch of people in a black church. And you got the, you know, the, the Hispanic mafia and you got the uh, black guerrilla family in the Aryans. And psh, psh, shit goes crazy. And then out of the crack comes this creature. So, so how, when you're writing something like that, are you writing it tailored to be a virtual experience? Yeah, we got the script writing software from Control Movie, who've done a picture, an interactive picture called Late Shift. And essentially, as you construct, you write a scene, it's in a box, and then there's two buttons under it, or three, depending, and you choose. And when you choose, it changes where the story goes. This, this, this is 300 pages. Whoa. Eight endings. So it's almost like a choose your own, it's almost like writing a choose your own adventure. Right. Did you, you know about Netflix, um, Black Mirror? Yes. They did that, you know. Um, yeah, okay. And, you know, this is a feature-length version. It's really entertaining. It's funny. Um, you know, the, the Inuit told them that, that they were crazy to build a prison there. This is the place of the unseen. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, so you got monsters. You got all this mayhem. And, you know, you got a situation where are they going to work together to, you know, survive? Or are they going to just keep killing each other? Yeah, and uh, it's the last day of the associate warden, um, who's a reformer, and the new guy has come in. He's a prick, and the warden gets killed, and then some other times the warden doesn't get killed, and 
<laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, it's, there's different movies. Nice. Yeah. I kind of imagine as like a creative person, that's got to be very liberating in terms of like, just it's fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is that, um, um, the biggest problem was coming up with really smart changes that the audience could pick. Now, when we started, you could go like three boxes wide on this, on this uh, software, right? So you got three different stories going. Well, as soon as you have the fourth one, it gets tucked way down. You know, you have these lines that connect, you know, you have to follow. And <clears throat> we finally got to the point where we opened a, another script next to it and then just said, okay, we get to this point, you got to go over to the other script. And then we were able, now it's like eight wide or something. Wow. So I've got that going. I wrote a book um, about my mom. It's a Christmas story. Okay. That I got published and that just went into Tom Hanks company. That's oh. a real long shot. The problem is it, when my mom was 10 years old, actually, yeah, 10 years old, she got to stay up the first time um, on Christmas Eve and she thought she was going to meet Santa Claus and it was a coal mining town during the depression. Okay. So her father, who was this kind of gruff world war one veteran, a uh, little damaged, quiet. Um, she finds out he's Santa Claus and, uh, it's a coming of age, you know, where you understand the true meaning of Christmas. This is it here. I got an award. Nice. Yeah, readers, readers, uh, readers favorite. Um, so there's that. Um, I've got. I write a lot. You know, I moved up here in 2011. I've been pounding shit out. You know, so I've I've got a lot of scripts. There's uh, pieces of eight. That's a treasure hunting movie in the Keys. It's really a lot of fun, and we want to get that to um, Brie Larson. Okay. So Tim's working on that because um, she. Well, we found out that she just got certified as a diver, and that's what you know the story's all about. It's like the deep, you know. Oh wow! Um, and the old Peter Benchley one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm not saying the story's the same, but you know, I mean, you remember sure. Jacqueline Bisset swimming underwater in that T-shirt? I do. Yeah. I mean, that'll sell tickets. Yeah. No. <laughs> She's a fabulous actress. Um, and uh, I'm working on, uh, you know, the streamers are going to be the thing now. You know, Warner Brothers announced that they're going to release um, the movies in the theater at the same time they put them on the HBO Max. Yeah. Streaming not, is, is the thing. Yeah, not everybody's pleased about that. Yeah, so I'm three hours into a, uh, uh, a limited series called Vendetta. And it's a modern telling of the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. And it's really, that's a lot of fun. And um, it's present day, you know, he gets imprisoned in Mexico. I won't go into it, but it's, it's really a lot of fun. And um, I, I, there's another one that I, I finished the Bible for um, that's about the 60s. It's about COINTELPRO. Okay. Wow. You know about, you know about COINTELPRO? The counterintelligence yeah. program of the FBI. You know, that, they, did you read Chaos, uh, the book? Um, 
blanking on. I lent my copy out, but it, the whole idea is that it's it's written by a guy who essentially was investigating, or, or he was he was assigned uh, an article for Premier Magazine about the anniversary of the Manson murders, and he ended up essentially writing an entire book and treaties as he did like 30 years of research about COINTELPRO and how Manson could have been hooked up with them. And it's, it's pretty wild shit. Wow. No, I didn't know anything about that. <clears throat> you know, in the sixties, you know, I mean, J. Edgar Hoover had already infiltrated the communist party. Yeah. And then, um, the, this, the, um, civil rights movement and then, um, the student movement. So, you know, that was my era. You know, I went to all the demonstrations and I went to May Day in D.C. And um, anyway, uh, a kid gets recruited by the FBI to join the SDS. And he's from a, you know, military family. His brother was shot down over Hanoi. His mother's a gold star mother. And, um, you know, he has to look the part. So she thinks he's gone hippie, you know. And uh, he finds out a lot of shit. You know, but that whole era you know the first season is 1967-68 so you got Dow days you've got um then the Tet Offensive LBJ doesn't run Martin Luther King gets murdered Bobby Kennedy gets assassinated the Chicago convention you know it's really uh amazing shit did you see uh there was a documentary that was put out this year think by IFC, uh, they put out a documentary called uh, MLK FBI, and it's all about uh, the FBI's investigations into Martin Luther King and how they essentially tried to uh, sabotage him, uh, sure. which is pretty tremendous stuff. Yeah, his photographer was, uh, you know, working for the FBI. Yeah, it sounds like... Um, Yours sounds almost like the late, like the Vietnam era. It is. Yeah. Answer to almost like the Americans. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. It's really fun. Um, I really like the pilot. I'd um, love to see that, man. That sounds amazing. We gave that to Tom Hanks comp Company, but I think that that was a little too left wing for him. Okay. Right? He's, you know, Mr. America in a lot of ways. Yeah. In a good way, you know. Um, Anyway, uh, it might be a tough sell, but we'll see. I also have an animated feature and a book. Um, wow. You're not that, lying when you say you're just banging stuff out. Yeah, and I'm, I have more, actually, but I don't <laughs> want to brag. But, you know, I, it's, um, that's what I do, you know. Hey. Yeah. You I'm, like I'm hoping, actually, I've got, well, there's, uh, I won't tell you everything, but there's a, a script called Painted Horse. Um, that I'm thinking we might be able to finance for the summer. Wow. So we're meeting some people from the Indian casino um, that we think uh, they read the script and they really love it. It's about the introduction of the horse to the Plains Indians. Wow. There was no, there were no horses here, you know, until the Spanish came. And then they started to spread out when they escaped and they started to breed out on the Plains and there was some trading going on in this case. Um, you know, it's a wild herd that this, um, that they discover and, you know, they want to catch them. And okay. It's, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, the movie Whale Rider? 
Yeah. It's Whale Rider meets Black Stallion. Okay. You know, it's a girl, and she wants to go on a vision quest because her mother told her in a dream, her mother has passed on, that she was going to bring great happiness to her people. And uh, she gets captured by Comanche, and they're chasing the horses, and she sees horses for the first time, blown away. And uh, she ends up being the first one to ride. And, wow. and she has to like, kind of get the horses away from the Comanches that are captured. And uh, it's fun. Well, I wish you all the luck, man. I want to see all well, everything you just described. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see what happens. There, like I said, um, it's been a really good time. It's funny because of COVID, but this Zoom thing, I'm having more meetings than I ever had in my whole life. You know, everybody's, you know, okay, well, you know, they're ready to jump on. And uh, so, you know, I'm getting a lot of traction on this stuff. And, uh, you know, I've got good partners. Tim Moore and I go back, way back, and then Kim Dawson. And so, you know, we were waiting for one of these things to kick in. And I think Tim, you know, Tim's working with, with uh, Clint. They're doing a picture in, in uh, New Mexico right now. And I don't know how much more we're going to get from Clint, you know. I mean, he's 90 years old. And yeah. We'll see. But, you know, Warner Brothers isn't going to let Tim go. And, you know, Tim has a, a big fan of my writing. So I think at some point when he hangs up his shingle beyond Clint, I'm going to have an opportunity to place a couple of these things. Because HBO Max is going to need material. That's all there is to it. They all are. Like, as, yeah. as we keep yeah. moving. It's, it's a very good time to have content. But I can tell you there's going to be a flood of it because everybody's writing because there's nothing else to do. Yeah. So there's competition all the time. It's right. always been that way, though. You have to audition for every job. Well, good luck to you. Thank Again. you, Jacob. Let's stay in touch, and, you know, I'll let you know if something's going, and you can help me promote it. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of yours and anything you got going, I will 100% promote that uh, because I've been waiting for you to do something for a while. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I've been sitting on the bench, uh, but I've been busy. As yeah. I said, you know, I, I, I've been writing and I have a whole lot of material and I'm just waiting to get one, you know, one more going. There's no such thing as a one picture deal. No. Well, you continue to keep on keeping on, sir. Again, thank you. And uh, thank you. we will speak soon. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye.